is from the Heiki Ganroku, case 55, Tao's Condolence Call. Introduction. Secure and intimate with the whole of reality, one obtains realization right there. In contact with the flow, able to turn things around, one assumes responsibility directly. As for cutting off confusion in the light of a stone-struck spark, or a flash of lightning, or towering up like a mile-high wall where one occupies the tiger's head and takes the tiger's tail, this I leave aside for a moment. Is there a way to help people by letting out a continuous path or not? To test, I cite this case, look. The case. Tao and Jianyuan went to a house to make condolence call. Yuan hit the coffin and said, alive or dead? Wu said, I won't say alive, I won't say dead. Yuan said, why won't you say? Wu said, I won't say, I won't say. Halfway back, as they were returning, Yuan said, tell me right away, teacher. If you don't tell me, I will hit you. Wu said, you may hit me but I won't say. Yuan then hit him. Later, Tao passed on. Yuan went to Shishuang and brought up the foregoing story. Shishuang said, I won't say alive, I won't say dead. Yuan said, why won't you say? Shishuang said, I will not say, I will not say. At these words, Yuan had an insight. One day, Yuan took a hoe into the teaching hall and crossed back and forth from east to west and west to east. Shuang said, what are you doing? Yuan said, I'm looking for the relics of our late master. Shuang said, vast waves spread far and wide, foaming billows flood the sky. What relics of our late master are you looking for? Zuetu added a comment saying, heavens, heavens. Yuan said, this is just where I should apply effort. Fu of Taiwan said, the late master's relics are still present. The verse. Rabbits and horses have horns. Oxen and rams have no horns. Nary a hair, nary a wisp. Like mountains, like peaks, the golden relics still exist right now. With white foaming waves flooding the sky, where can they be put? There is no place to put them. Even the one who returns from the west with one shoe has lost them. Speaking of lost, I lost my voice a couple of days ago. I found it, partially. <coughs> so, we'll see how it goes. This may be a quiet Taisho or a short one. We'll see. You know, the inscription on the Han <coughs> that we hit every Sunday. 
says life and death are of supreme importance, right? which is something we, you hear on a regular basis. The quote from Dogen Zenchi that the Ino repeats over and over again, right? When we close the day. And, and the point of the escalating beat of the Han, or the in-your-face kind of sound of the Han, is really just that. It's just to shake us up, wake us up to the importance of the question of life and death. And that's what I wanted you to, to work with today uh, when we started the, the Zazenkai. I asked us all, I brought up the, the importance of inquiring into this question of life and death. Not because it's part of the job description of a practitioner, right? because it is essential for us as human beings to understand what it means to be a human being. And if we run away from death, from embracing death, then we run away from our responsibility to be a, hum a human being. Now, without inquiring into this, we, we can't know much about what it means to be a human being. How could we, right? How can we know if we pretend or if we deny or if we don't accept such a fundamental aspect of our existence, of our functioning? So we have to be on the same page when it comes to that understand why it is written on the hand, why the inner repeats that at the end of the day. Why do we have to hear it over and over again? Life and death are of supreme importance, right? The chant, the inner chant. And it is of supreme importance since all other inquiries are secondary to this one. In other words, if we don't inquire into that, then no other inquiry will free us. Or all other inquiries essentially lead to this one. So there is no escape. Right? Not because the Buddha said that, because we know there is no escape. So in a way, we can say that our practice is To learn how to die well, so we learn, so we know how to live well. And if we don't know how to die well, can we expect to know how to live well? Is it possible to live well? What does it mean to live well? To acquire wealth? To have a great job? To have a nice car? Nice house? That's all we aspire for. Now we're capable of so much more than that. And look at what we settle for. That's all I want. Then I'll be happy. 
does acquiring any of these things solve this fundamental inquiry? Does it help us get closer to understanding that this is it? This is it means the whole thing is it. The living, the dying, and everything in between. Nothing is outside of that. Do we agree that this is the fundamental question? No, and Dogen says both life and death are of supreme importance. Right? He's saying both, right? He's saying that because he wants to mess with our conventional and logical way of thinking that we can embrace life without embracing death. That's how we think. I'm going to focus on that and pretend the other one does not exist. I try to cover it up with something. Botox, or maybe stretch my skin so I can look better, right? Or dye my hair. The crazy things we do in order to deny what is undeniable. How stupid can we be, right? Just for a little while, I want to look younger. Okay, then what? Then what? Actually, what it does, it makes the pain much more painful. Pretending doesn't work. You know, the, the perception of division between the two, between life and death, is just a result of our emotional interpretation. It's not there. It's not there in the same way that moment by moment there are no gaps. Right? Between this, what we call this moment, and what we call the next moment, can you find the gap? And it's not different than we die in a moment, right? So the moment of death follows a moment what we call life. Where's the gap? Or what is the gap about? Maybe that's a better question, right? Because the, we still see a gap, and the gap is not even if it's not there, there is a gap, and the gap is about something or someone. Someone. That the moment is there, and the next moment is no longer there. And that someone does not want to not be there. Although that someone knows it's not a choice we can make. You know, th to learn how to, to, to die is to learn how to live. Right? It's not that this, this practice is 
dark or negative or anything else we, we think about it. Right? It's not that. It's just, it's very real. It's very practical. It's very pragmatic. It's, it shows things as they are, as you've heard many times before. It reports, right? Buddhism is like a, a reporter that says, here's what's going on. Here's what's really going on. And saying it over and over again. Everything in our practice is actually saying that over and over again. Now you put that side by side with what we think, there's a discrepancy there. And with time and practice, actually that discrepancy shrinks. Because we realize more and more that, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Is it bad? Does it make us does it make us care less or care more is the question. Because right? we can say, of course, well, you know, it's all gonna end anyway, so why bother, right? Why do anything? Why care about anything or anybody? That would be speaking from the one who is rejecting, but is rejecting in a different way. The one who has found a, a maybe more clever way to reject. What's the other way around, right? Because to, to realize this is fleeting. Is to want to, or is raising a deeper understanding of how important it is to actually be here and express our humanity or understand what it is to be human and express that in the deepest way possible, in the most caring way possible. Because really to understand how to die is to understand how to live as a human being. It is so, so crucial. You know, it's not, the Buddha did not decide to include impermanence as, as part of the curriculum because he thought, well, it's going to sell well. <laughs> Actually, it's not going to sell well if you include it the other way around. But it was the other way around. For him, it was through looking deeply into impermanence, into this unavoidable predicament of a human being. From this, he realized and we need to do the same. That's why I suggest this morning that we sit with life and death, inquire into life and death, looking at our, to look at our relationship with that. And we have to find the courage to, to do that. It's not, okay, well, I'm going to, instead of thinking about what I'm doing this week, I'll just think about dying. Not quite the same. It's not the same. It doesn't raise the same emotional interpretations. So it does take courage. But that's what gives rise or give, gives birth to Buddhism. 
And we have to give birth to Buddhism, not to chew what other teachers chewed and spat down to the ground. We're going to pick it up and chew it again. That's not the point of practice. We do what people have done before us because it works. We do what they have done because we, this is a, a way to awaken to reality as it is. That's why there is a path. Not for the path, not for the sake of the path or the sake of the tradition, but for the sake of our awakening, for the sake of our breaking through our suffering, our entanglements. It's an important point. Because if we don't understand that, then we don't understand how to use the practice correctly. And if we don't understand how to use the practice correctly, we are bound to reject it, throw it away, because we may be convinced that it's not working for us. Yeah, but practice is a tool, and it's like any other tool. If we don't know how to work with the tool, the tool is useless. It's true. It's useless. So we have to take the time to understand, to work with the tools of the practice. And it's not the first time you hear it. When it comes to uh, Zazenkai, Ango, liturgy, bowing, all of it. Oriyoki. It's easy to say it doesn't work and chuck it, throw it away. And I'm saying it also because some of you know uh, we, we had a ceremony for Bernie this morning. Some of you know that uh, Bernie Glassman or she disrobed. He was a priest for many years. He was the first Dharma successor of Maizumi Roshi, and he disrobed after Maizumi died. Actually, Maizumi, he brought this up to Maizumi Roshi before he died, and he said, if you will do that, I will disown you. So he did. But he did disrobe afterwards. And it may have worked very well for him, Maybe some will agree, some will not. There was some controversy about that. But the, the point for us is, is not to judge or criticize another person for doing something. That's not really the important part. The, the, the question it should raise for us is, do I know, do I understand how to use the practice correctly? Because if I don't, then that's exactly what I need to look at. Because then the practice may just be repetition or may not be valid anymore. Maybe arcane. Why are we doing all this? It's a lot that we do, right? We, we light incense, we bow, we chant, we, we eat in a very specific certain way when we do Zazakai Sashins. It's very cumbersome, it's very involved. It's a lot of work. Yet it's not at all. 
because it's not different than anything else we do. In appearance, only in appearance it is. But in reality, it's not different. It's the same. But then there is something in us that says, no, it's not the same. It's different. There's something that separates, which is good, because then it gives us a chance to look at what is it in me that separates this from that. It's a great opportunity. Why is there aversion in me? Because this is where it begins. We separate life and death, but it doesn't begin with life and death. We separate everything. We judge everything. Quantify everything. So it's important to work with the small separations before we get to the big one. Or to learn how to work with our tendency to separate and judge and quantify. You know, th there is no kensho or realization that does not pass through the big inquiry of life and death. There's no, well, I'll settle on a small one because I really don't want to look at my own mortality. <clears throat> so I'll be okay with just being happy with <clears throat> a small experience. There is no other Kensho. <coughs> so I wanted to bring it up today but because we had uh, the ceremony today of burning. Also, because last week we had a Mizuko Kuyo ceremony, which also deals with death. The unborn and the born. Right? There's always that to deal with. So it's an integral part of our life, death is, whether we're willing to face it or not. And the question is, are we willing to embrace it as an integrated part of our practice? Which means to put it on the tip of our nose and never lose sight of it. And raise the intention to keep it there in the background so we don't fall back on our tendency to deny or create uh, alternative options or run away from dealing with it. There's a famous uh, Buddhist story about the four horses, some of you know. <clears throat> the first horse responds to the shadow of the whip and starts running before getting hit. The second horse starts running when it feels the pain on the skin. The third horse starts running when the pain is felt in the flesh. And the fourth horse starts running when the pain penetrates through the flesh and is felt on the bone, the level of bone. And this, this, this analogy is actually about us. It's about how we 
deal with or don't or not deal with the fundamental question of our existence. So the first horse, the analogy for somebody who takes the initiative to embrace death long before it hits home. Long before. The second is someone who responds to it when hearing or reading about death. Realizing, yeah, this is it. Until now, I denied, but now I am not denying that. The third one is someone who opens up to the fact of dying when a close family member is facing death. And the fourth one is somebody who realizes when facing his or her own mortality. And the story is really is not praising the, <coughs> the first horse and, the, and degrading the fourth one, although we may actually feel it that's doing that. All he's saying is that sooner or later we will die. And it is putting that truth right in front of us so we take heed now. Whether we are at the level of the first or the fourth, it really doesn't matter. It is time. That's all it's saying. One of the poems, uh, Kabir, 15th century uh, Indian mystic said, what you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? It's another way of saying, this is it. Do not wait another second to face what is. And the thing is, you know, for, more, for, for all of us here, right, it's not, this study of impermanence is not about actually dealing with the moment of death. It's more about the implication it has on the way we encounter this very moment. How do we feel about this moment when we embrace, or if we embrace, death as an integral part of what we call life. That's where it matters. <clears throat> you know, practicing or learning or embracing dying or death is not about another moment. It's only about this moment. Because this is the moment that matters. This is the moment it will impact our lives or the way we function. This is the moment we find the difference between bondage and freedom. So what kind of life do we lead when we view death as 
a subject to avoid looking at or accept. And when we, when we take impermanence personally, what does that lead to? What kind of actions does that lead to? What kind of feelings arise in us when we take it personally? And then what kind of life do we lead or can we lead when we fully embrace the understanding that life and death are essentially inseparable. How does that change the quality of this moment? I think we have a very interesting relationship with impermanence. You know, when we are maybe in the beginning of the week and there's a lot going on at work, huge tasks to get through. We can't wait for the weekend. We love impermanence at that moment. We love the fact that this will end and the weekend will come. Right? And we have a pleasant experience. We go on vacation. We hate impermanence. It's an enemy because it's threatening to take away what we want. We love it when it's going to take away what we don't want. We hate it when it takes away what we love. Look how self-centered that is. Isn't that something? Aren't we learning something when we're seeing that this is how we... And it's, it's funny because... Impermanence is impermanent. It's not about what we like or dislike. It's not about anything. Because it's not personal. It's been doing what it's doing before we arrived here at this form, and it's going to keep doing what it's doing right after that. It's not about us. We even love how it looks, right? I mean, we drive up to upstate New York to see the leaves change, and we love the colors. We take pictures of them. Isn't that death? Are we not taking pictures of death, admiring the changing of the colors? What's the difference between a leaf dying and us? I mean, do we realize that we are looking at the same thing, yet changing our opinions about it from moment to moment based on how we feel? And then we think we're not self-centered. I think one of the things about practice is that it will always show us, no matter how long we practice, it will always show us that <clears throat> We are a lot more self-centered than we think. Even after decades of practice. It's one of the things uh, you quoted today, right? From Bernie, right? The, the idea that we don't get trapped. An idea. We get trapped. We trap ourselves. 
And the good thing about practice is that we have a flashlight to shed light on it and see that we get trapped. And that's where practice counts. That's where it matters. The moment of seeing, I just got trapped. Because maybe from that moment forward, at least the next moment, maybe I will act differently. Or maybe I will stop it there and not create more suffering for someone else. Point is, either way, we don't seem to have a really healthy relationship with the most intimate and close companion we will ever have. The most intimate companion, life and death. So maybe it's good to take the responsibility to work with that, to look at that. Right? The introduction to this koan says, secure and intimate with the whole of reality. That's what that means. Secure and intimate. Or maybe it should be intimate, thus secure. So we're going to rewrite some of these cons. <laughs> That is the pointers, right? The introduction. Right? Because intimately experiencing reality as it is, is there another kind of security? That's not talking about security based on the bank account or the job or the status. Talk about a different kind of security, right? With, which means the whole of reality. And it says one obtains realization right there. Because realization, the path of realization, always will go through embracing life and death. It says in contact with flow, able to turn things around. One assumes responsibility directly. To be secure and intimate with the whole of reality means to fully accept and embrace all of it without judging, dividing, creating personal story of what happened. To be in direct contact with the flow means to be fully present and bear witness to what comes. And then to take full responsibility for how we meet the moment. But to embrace means to embrace everything, not just when it suits me. Now we come to practice with that. So if we keep doing that with the practice, we're not doing anything different then we may say practice doesn't work. And we're right. Practice doesn't work. It's not meant to work. We have the responsibility to use it well, rather than tweak, change, chuck, get rid of it, go somewhere else. That's a cop-out. 
for that's more than I. So the introduction is telling us to take full responsibility to keep returning to oneness and to intimately become one with the experience we're having at any given moment. Especially when there's a strong feeling of aversion and pain. And all we want to do is run away from the experience. But where do we go? Where do we hide from what we are? How can we hide? In the Hazy Moon, Brandy Glassman says, a lot of work has been done in recent years in, in hospitals, especially with people who are terminally ill with cancer or in chronic deep pain. The work from a variety of approaches centers on training the people to become one with their pain. These experiments have been very successful and in that the people who have really involved themselves in training generally die very differently from the people who have not been able to become one with their pain. It's apparently something that can be learned, he says. The key here is all oneness. Eliminate the distinction between yourself and others. At the moment of being hit, there is no suffering. There is not even knowing that you're hit. At that very moment, there's no distinction and there is no suffering. It doesn't mean that a rock doesn't land on your head really hard, right? At that moment still, there will be that experience. That's all there is, he says. At that moment, that's all there is. Nothing more, nothing less. You don't think, oh, a rock came down and hit me on my head, on my head. It's just the pain, that sudden happening. In that state of oneness, it doesn't mean that you've rid yourself of the things you see and feel in a dualistic state. If you see a person on a fire, you feel his suffering, he's burning up. But when there's really no separation between yourself and that suffering, there is no you left to suffer. So he's not saying there's no experience of pain. He's just saying there's nobody there to judge it as pain. To judge it in relation to another experience. To separate. So to fully embrace. And he's not saying it's easy. And when he talks about training, he's not saying it's easy. He's also not saying it's hard or difficult, right? All he's saying is that we, we, we must practice over and over again to a point that it becomes embodied, to a point that it becomes a way of functioning. Now, we have to do it with a small irritation, the small, that's what I said before, the, the little things the small resistances or aversions. And we encounter those on a, on a regular basis. So instead of pointing a finger to that which is the problem, point a finger at that which creates the one who is having a problem. 
I mean, just look at that. What is this? Who? Who is creating a gap? Hawkins, better die now than later, says, better fully merge with reality now than waiting for a better opportunity to do it. And now is now. Now is wide open. Because now is everything, right? Now it could be this, now it could be that. Now it could be what I love, now it could be what I hate. Of course, what I love, easy to merge with. And even with that merging, there is already an issue. I merge, but I love this moment. Which means, deep down, I know this moment will pass along with what I love in it or about it. And again, because there is no option. There's no another option. And then the introduction keeps going. As for cutting off confusion in the light of a stone-struck spark or a flash of lightning or towering up like a mile-high wall or what occupies the tiger's head and takes the tiger's tail, this I leave aside for the moment. Is there a way to help people by letting out a continuous path or not? Now this question, right, the question raised here, is the vital point of this koan Well, we could say that the, the vital question of our tradition, you know, what is this path we call Zen? What are we creating? What have we created of it? And does it help? Is it skillful in helping people to wake up? Helping us to wake up from delusion? And it's important to examine that. I'm not saying it is, I'm not saying it's not. I mean, I'm not telling it is or it's not. But I am saying that we always have to keep that question alive. You know, the, the great doubt, the great doubt is as important as the great trust. Those two are equally as important. If one starts to take over, either one then we have a problem. If we trust without doubting, idiot compassion, right? You've heard that before. If we doubt without trusting, we go back to old habits. We have to doubt while we trust and trust while we doubt. All the time. Whether we practice one day or 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, keep the doubt alive. So in this case, or about this case, you know, this question is bringing it up, and he's asking whether or not <clears throat> the way Tao dealt with Qian Yuan is helpful. Was it helpful? Or is it helpful today? <clears throat> so Tao and Chen Yuan went to house to make condolence calls. 
know, and, and as a priest, you know, sometimes priests are invited to do that, uh, whether to officiate over some ceremony or to visit somebody that they know. <coughs> so Chen Yuan took him as uh, as a student, right, or somebody who was in training. So they walk in, and there's the coffin. And Yuan hits the coffin, and he's asking, dead or alive? What is it? Looking at the corpse, what is it? And Tao said, I won't say. I will not tell you. You know, Tao was, was a Chinese Zen master, ninth century, <coughs> who you may have heard of before. He's a really good teacher. And in this case, he was teaching. Right? They went to, to make a condolence call, but he was actually teaching, dealing with the question in the most compassionate way. Giving while seemingly not doing so. And the question for us is, do we see that? Or how do we see that exchange? I won't say alive, I won't say dead. So why did he not help his teacher clarify this most essential, most fundamental point of our practice, of our lives? Or was he, in fact, helping by seemingly refusing to help? Now, how do we understand seemingly refusing to help? Because that's the first impression, maybe. He's refusing to help his student. And maybe the question is here is, what do we expect from a teacher? <laughs> Or what do we expect from our own efforts? You know, in, in working with teachers for, for many years, Aikido and Zen, one of the things I learned is to have much greater expectation of my own practice and effort than from a teacher. I learned to not abdicate the responsibility, to fully realize that I am responsible moment by moment. Not that I know, but I'm responsible to put one foot in front of the other, to deal with my own interpretations that arise moment by moment. Rather than ask, why is he saying this or she doing that? Ask, why am I feeling what I'm feeling in relation to what? I just heard. It's a much more important question. Then why is he refusing to give me an answer? You now a teacher can guide, support, encourage, and mirror. But ultimately the responsibility to break through entanglement and to realize liberation is on each of us. And often, no or go away is actually the most caring and compassionate response we can hope for or receive from a teacher. 
Actually, it means, we don't see that, but it means that the teacher trusts you, that you can realize that you don't need to be spoon-fed. The teacher trusts you to realize. So it's, he's telling you, or she's telling you, go away. But it's very hurtful, isn't it? Work with that. We have to hear no, 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 over and over again. So it turns it around, as Dogen said, to turn the light inwardly and shine on the one who is asking the question. Why do you think you're incomplete? Why do you think you're not liberated? What do you trust to be so convinced that you're not liberated, you're not free? What are you obeying? So we have to hear no, no, no. Well, we chant. All things are expression of emptiness, not born, not destroyed, not stained, not pure, without loss, without gain. There is no form, no sensation, perception, reaction, consciousness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. No sound, smell, touch, thing, no realm of sight, no realm of consciousness, no ignorance and no end to ignorance. No old age and death, and no end to old age and death. The whole thing, one big negation. For at least that paragraph. No suffering, no cause or end to suffering. No suffering and no end to suffering. How do we understand that? How could that be? Yamamoto Genpo, whenever anyone died, would say, he was not born, neither did he die, ever. He's gone nowhere. He's right here. Don't ask him. He will not answer. How could he answer? How, could he, how else could he answer by saying, but saying, I will not say dead, I will not say alive? He refused to say it is dead, and he refused to say it is alive. Then what is it? Only in the sphere of words there are divisions and opposites. And so if it's not dead, it's alive. If it's not alive, it must be dead. It's either here or here, logically. Words, actually only words create sense of divisions, right? And then they also create sense of absoluteness. 
And because of that, we get the sense that he's actually shedding light on reality. Because words seem absolute, tangible. If we go to the word, that's why in Quran study, we should not go to the words, we should go to, or go somewhere else. Allow the thoughts, the words, to come and go. Allow them to subside. What's left? What was there before the thought arises or after the thought subsides? What is always there? What has always been there? Now, every time we go to the words or the thoughts to find a sense of clarity, we only get more confused because reality is incapable of absoluteness. It's not static. It's not fixed. Actually, often it may be contradicting to the mind, to the thinking mind. So it may seem contradicting and maybe because we have a problem with contradictions, we run away from that into words. And then in the sphere of words, I can make sense of all this. I can reject, I can deny, I can embrace. So we need to question what seems to make sense. Right, because when, when he's pointing at the corpse and saying and asking, is he dead or alive? That by itself already is questioning what seems to be completely logical. I'm looking at the corpse. Where's the question? Why would he ask a question about something that we may look at? Well, this, can't you see? This is dead. But he's going beyond that just to raise the question. And the footnote to this exchange <coughs> praises Yuan's persistence and says, afterwards about hitting him, he says, if he hits Tao, he'll be getting somewhere. It is rare to meet the pierced ear traveler. It's referring to Bodhidharma. He says, you often encounter travelers who cut a notch in the boat. If you're like the latter, you will enter hell as fast as an arrow. Do you remember to cut a notch in the boat? It's a, there's a story about a soldier who is on a boat and he drops his sword in the water and he quickly marks the boat where the sword fell down so he come back and find it. It's a great story. Right? making something fixed right there. Oh, I'm going to go back to that. Or like the, uh, the, the hunter. <coughs> the guy was out there hunting, and he's crouching quietly, waiting for something to come to kill. And he sees a rabbit that runs into a stump and dies. Goes out, takes the rabbit, cooks it, eats it for dinner. Next day, go back, goes back to the stump to wait for another rabbit. 
That's what we do, though. I mean, this is it's a funny story. It's a funny story. It's supposed to be do. We create something, and then we wait. We think that our creation actually means something. That's why he's, he, the footnote is praising it because he's questioning what seems to make sense, or lo- seems to be logical, or seems to be real. Of course, that's death, or, is, or this is dead, whatever this is. And then the footnote comments on the actual beating, saying, he should be hit, but say, why does he hit him? From the beginning, there have been people who have received unjust beatings. So that's a beautiful footnote. We don't have that much time, but a lot more there. So throughout history, you know, Zen teachers have been rebuked for being stingy, for being withholding something from a student. And of course, that's natural, because as long as the student abdicates the responsibility, then it's easy to blame the, the teacher or to demand an explanation from another person. To demand an explanation is not the same as to be guided. We do need to be guided to ourselves. And that does not come with an explanation. So Tao does get hit. Although at the end of the day, his, th- his student realized it was unjust. <laughs> Not at the end of that day, though. Later on, he realized, yeah, that was pointless. And also think about this, you know, how many times you know we speak and act in harsh ways while we are deluded in one way or another, only seeing a portion of reality. And then we open our eyes, get sober, realize that the harsh behavior was completely unjustified. How many times we may misinterpret the teacher's intent and see something completely different. Later on realize, oh, that's not what, it's what I heard, but it's not what was meant. Which means that my ability to listen changes over time and practice, with practice. Which means I should not create absoluteness. So later on, Tao passed away and Qian Yuan was still looking for someone to answer his questions, his question. So he went to Shishuang, his older Dharma brother, and brought up the foregoing story. And Shuang gave him the same answer. I won't, uh, I won't say alive, I won't say dead. And Yuan said, well, what'd you say? I will not say, I will not say. And at this word, it says that Yuan had an insight. He had an insight. It's not that he actually realized or it's an insight. It's an opening. So he's asking the same question, gets the same answer, yet at that point he realizes something. And the footnote says, 
Though his words are the same, his intent is different. But say, is this the same or different from his asking before? Kusichuan says the same exact thing, right, as Tao. But this time, Chen Yuan listens in a different way and is able to hear what he could not comprehend before. This is a classic example of perseverance and determination. Just keep going. And I said last time, that's all we need, the three ingredients. The only three ingredients needed in our practice, doubt, trust, determination. That's it. That's it. He doubted, he trusted, and he remained on the path. It's a lot to learn from that for us. So then later on, after that, one day, Yuan took a hole into the teaching hall, crossed back and forth, east to west, west to east. And Shishuan was there and asked him, what are you doing? Yuan said, well, I'm looking for the relics, the bones of our old master. Maybe he wanted to say I'm sorry, bow, repent. And Shishuan looks at him and says, vast waves spread far and wide, foaming billows flood the skies. What relics are you looking for? He's ready to add to the comment, heavens, heavens. Vast waves spread far and wide, foaming billows flood the skies. It's all happening. It's only your thoughts that are holding you back. It's only your own confusion that is creating confusion. What are you looking for? What's missing? What's not there? What is not there to awaken you right now? It's all happening. We can't see it. Remember last week I was on the mat, I was you know, teaching Aikido and somebody asked me a question about technique and I, <coughs> and it's, you know, it's easy to answer. And I was, as I was answering, I realized that many years ago when I was stuck with the same confusion, actually. I went to my teacher and asked, and he says, well, here's the, here's the answer. And he showed it to me, and I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. It just didn't make sense at that moment. Later on, I realized, yeah, now I understand what he meant. But I did not understand at the moment he said it, the moment I asked the question. And I had to keep asking the question over and over and over and over again, and train and train and train and train. And work with that doubt. Well, I could have fueled confusion, more confusion, or maybe frustration. I could have said, well, I'm never going to get it. I could have done a lot of things. But I chose to just keep practicing. I chose to trust that at that moment, although I'm not able to see what he's showing me, he's still showing. It's something that I need to work on to see what he's showing me. Which means to, to work on 
how these eyes work, or what the eyes connect with, or the interpretations that arise out of, or at the moment of looking at something. The logic that arises out of that, the logical explanations. And then, fine, I'll put that aside too and keep going. See what happens, see where it goes. See what I can learn. What's holding you back? My voice lasted a lot longer than I thought. It's pretty amazing. You know, it's amazing. I have to learn. Maybe I said it before. It's amazing what happens when you when you sit on that seat. It's two things at at once. It's you saying what you need to say, but at the same time, there is hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition and other teachers supporting it. tremendous amount of strength and power and vitality that flows through your blood, through your veins. Actually, I feel it with Aikido, too. You know, when, when, when we get out of our, of our own way, there's just so much tremendous energy and power that wants to flow through. It wants to. At its, this is its nature. And we stop it. It's so sad that we stop it. One of the things we learn, we practice, is that we have to just get out of the way. We have to get out of our own way. What, there's another um, footnote from, from another koan. It says, give up recollection. What limit is there to the pure wind circling the earth? What limit is there to the pure wind circling the earth? It's not limited. We are unlimited. But we think we are limited. And when we think we are limited, we act as if we are limited. In fact, we create a life of the one who is limited. Even if it's not true, it, may, it is very much true to us. We tell ourselves that. We tell others that. We believe it. Others begin to believe it. And it becomes real. Although false, it becomes real. So we need to contemplate now, today, the issue of life and death, the issue of separating life from death, death from life. You know, in a classical title, Shoji, Dogen says, 
It is a mistake to think that we go from being alive to being dead. Being alive is a position at one moment in time. It already has its past and it will have its future. Therefore, within the Buddha Dharma, we say that life is beyond just the act of being born. That is also a position at the moment, at one moment in time. And it too has its past and future. Accordingly, we say that death is beyond the act of just dying. In the time we call living, there is nothing except life. And in the time we call dying, there is nothing except death. Thus, when life comes, it is simply life. And when death comes, it is simply death. When facing up to them, do not say that you want to cling to one and push away the other. This living and dying is precisely what the treasured life of a Buddha is. Because it includes all aspects, all our expressions as a human being. Being born is an expression of a human being, isn't it? Living is an expression of a human being. Dying is an expression of a human being. But we like one more than the other. That's what he says here. Do not cling to one and push away the other. Because when you push away the other, you push away the one you cling to. Because they are inseparable. So we have to do it now, today, this moment. You know, there's, in the Mumon card, Mumon says, when earth, water, fire, and wind are suddenly about to decompose, that's the moment of death. You will be like a crab within, crab which has fallen into boiling water and is struggling with his seven arms and eight legs. At that time, do not say I did not warn you. Now what is he saying? Do not say I did not warn you. He's saying now is the time to contemplate life and death. Now is the time. All right, I will end this with a quote from Rumi, because we have to end it. It says, this place is a dream. Only a sleeper considers it real. Then death comes like, a, like dawn, and you wake up laughing at what you thought was your grief. You wake up laughing at what you thought was your grief. You wake up laughing at your own creation, realizing all along I created my own trap. All along I crawled into my own cocoon. All along there was no limit. 